Welcome to Bonehead. I'm Joe Lewis. Why the hell do I? Yeah, I know. Anyway, welcome to Bonehead. Today we have a special guest star, and who is that? Returning victim. Returning victim, Mick Strawn. Mick Strawn! Yay! <laughs> New phone books are here. <laughs> I'm your fourth. I, I'm your fourth. Well, Haley's your fourth, but I'm 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 like the fifth Beatle. Well, the I'm thing the is, bonehead. is you're our what you're not technically our first guest star, and I'm not poo-pooing our first people, but you're our first one that actually worked in the industry, and <clears throat> we had a great episode a while back with Andre, Ellington, and we would never have had that without you. So I want to go ahead and give you one more thank you at the beginning of this, and then I'll stop kissing your ass. <laughs> oh. <won't. laughs> I mean, well, I I love a good tickle as well as anybody. Uh, Andre Andre did a great job though. He he, he really he did. He really did. Yeah, I was so jealous of him as he sat there and drank and smoked a cigar. So <laughs> during the whole episode, it was great. And, and you know what the thing is is like I told you, Andre is the man's man, right? Yeah. You yeah. Know? And the fact that he was like drinking a, a scotch and and ripping down on a cigar, you know, as he's doing it, you know. It could have been Arnold. <laughs> no, it was great. It was great. And he had some, so many good stories and stuff. But anyway, we're happy to have you back. Before we get started, and I know you complimented me on this before, and I do appreciate you doing it, even though it was behind closed doors. Don't yeah. ask. Don't ask. <laughs> I want to go ahead. You're, you got your own podcast now, brother. You're moving I up do. in the world. I, have you listened to it? Yeah, I'll listen to about five minutes of it. Five minutes ago. <laughs> I'm, what you I'm, think? I'm, I'm screwed with you. I'm sorry. <laughs> Love you. But you know, I, I, you're I, still I, my bottom bitch. <laughs> I think one thing that's interesting. I was actually listening to the one, your your commentary on downsizing. Oh right, yeah. And, and where you mentioned that um, being able to remove yourself from what you already know about making effects and stuff like that, I thought that was really interesting because that was one of the questions I did have was how do you do that. Where you know what goes into it. That's, you know, it's an interesting thing that as soon as I, the more that I began to learn about film, the the less, op less often that it happened, that all of a sudden I was totally sucked into the story. That's how you know it's a good movie, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh absolutely. It's when, when, when your mind just does the full trick. Because, right. Look, you know, it's it's sort of like the the pers persistence of vision thing that actually makes films possible. Is our our persistence of vision makes it so that we don't see frame by frame by frame by frame by frame, right? And and it's kind of like that illusion when all of a sudden I lose myself in in the film. You right. know, all of a sudden it's just persistence of vision. I, that's all I can see. I can just see the story in front of me. And I tell you, the first time that I totally remember it happening um, was uh, I had gotten more and more into the business and I'm just watching and er everything was very, you know, analytical, you know? Yeah. And, and, and then Field of Dreams came out and for some reason that film <coughs> was like the first one when I was in the business that all of a sudden I watched the whole film and I couldn't tell you a thing about how it was done <laughs> at all because I was just totally into it. Totally really? there. Okay. Chad and I have talked about this before, um, and I'll tell a story 
about your wife, uh, you'll be sitting and watching a movie and his wife's not really into movies and he'll go, this is going to happen in X amount of time and X amount. And she'll think he's a soothsayer. Like he's able to right. look in front of the, into the future. And the thing is, is and you know so many, much more about, about the technical way of fil how films are made. Or, 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 or let's face it, when you're watching, um, you know, Law and Order, right? And five minutes into it, some guy that you've seen before is the owner of a hot dog cart, right? <laughs> yeah, right. He, and you never see him again in the rest of the show. He's the one that did it. Right. Yeah, yeah. And the first suspect's never it. Uh, like an episode of House, the first thing that they guess is obviously not it. It's not going to come out to the third exactly. act. Exactly. I mean, you know, it's not lupus. It's never lupus. never lupus. It's Absolutely. It's never lupus. So, I mean, and these are genres, and genre is nothing more than expected outcomes, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, anyway. See, that's a great bumper sticker. It's never lupus. It's never lupus. <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> Anyway, what I'm saying is, I, we've talked about that because that's kind of how we gauge it. If I don't see it coming, or if I don't care, like I'm so into right. that story going on of ever how well it's done that I'm not even trying to figure it out. I'm just enjoying it as a go. That's that's the marker of a a really good movie. Even a few times during it this time, and, and I have to tell you, I was watching it and I was totally sucked in. Totally not even thinking about any of the any of my you know usual analytical crap. Right. And and then the guy waved at them with a rubber arm that was so obvious. Because it just comes out, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the thing is, is it it was bending here, right? You know, it's waving with the rubber arm, and I went, well, that's a rubber arm, and that was it. The rest of the film, I was I was analytical and oh well, this is this and that's that gag and that's this gag. Oh damn it, Mick! Now when I rewatch it, I'm gonna pay attention to the arm. <laughs> oh the come on! And our, our producer Haley's over here shaking her head. Oh yeah, but I didn't notice it because I was into it. Another one is John Carpenter's The Thing, and Rob Bottin did all those you know yeah, those great yeah, effects. That's a good example. That's They're a good really example good. of great of great practical effects. But anyway, because you, <laughs> it's when he it's when the Norris monster bites the arms off of the doctor, and it's it's kind of yeah. here, and you clearly see the gelatin, but until it's pointed yeah. out to you, and that it's cut off here, but that actually the arms removed it up here. Yeah. Oh, and then it's like son of a bitch. You, you see it every single time from that point a, on. The great thing about that film was that you couldn't figure out why it kept evolving into all these different things. Yeah. It didn't make any sense at all, but it was so freaking cool. It's so cool. There, let, it, let it happen. Let it be. And it doesn't matter because... No go logic needed. I, and I was watching it back uh, over uh, right before Christmas. It was just having to be on, and I was... Every single practical effect in that... Uh, practical, practical effect in that movie holds up. It's the stop motion that looks like shit now. Yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but it didn't really look great at the time, uh, except for one when the spider monster goes across the yeah, floor yeah. with the little legs moving. That's clearly just a little remote control yeah. car. <laughs> that's the only one that doesn't really hold up. We're getting off topic. So sorry. But anyway, yeah, we had a lot of fun. We had a topic. Not really, but let's get back to your podcast. So, how are you doing oh, yeah. it? Where can they find it? Let's talk about that. Okay, um, my my podcast is called Dream Warrior Review. Yeah. Um, it's it's basically a uh, another film review. I mean, we kind with of do with a white guy. Horror. What? With a white another white guy. We make this joke all the time. I was gonna say, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> well, 
I just I just hate chalkies. Well, well, <laughs> I'm not living in LA anymore. I live in Kennewick, Washington. How hey, wait a minute. He's married to a black woman. He is, and they just had a baby. <laughs> oh, this Seriously? is something you hear? <laughs> no, I'm telling you. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> You said another white guy, yes, but he's married to a black woman. She's beautiful and she's funny, and she <laughs> sticks her head. She gave him, he, she gave him a light that uh, says um, uh, on the air. Uh huh. On air light. Yeah. This is to put it in the studio. Nobody ever comes into the studio. We got that tattooed on Joe's ass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a big tattoo. <laughs> It's a big tattoo. So, yeah, so your podcast, so how did it get started? Uh, like I say, I, I, uh, uh, my, my son was renting uh -huh. a, a house out that, that his first house. Yeah. And I was over there helping prep it. And this couple came in. And for some reason, the guy and I just totally hit it off. And I kept trying to, I kept saying, going by and saying, let's go see a movie. Let's go see a movie. Finally, I dragged him to a movie and we then discussed the movie to living death. And uh, then after a while, I kind of said, well, you know, I'm kind of, I was a production designer for years. And, and I found out that all the films that I'd done, he was fans of them, right? Nightmare on Street 3. So imagine that. Kind of yeah. Kind of went from there. And we didn't make any huge uh he had all the equipment. He's in radio. He's a uh, uh he's a radio salesman and every once in a while he guest DJs around here, you know. Um and uh Kirk Thomas was born and we've been doing great. Dream Warrior Review. Come on, come all. Absolutely, selfless. Uh, uh, it's it's a, it's a shameless, very loose, shameless plug, it, but it's a loose review film because it's actually just an excuse for me to tell stories. Yeah, which you're really good so at. So half half of it, half of it's the two of us bantering back and forth, and then the rest of it's um, which we call story time, which has got this fun little tag on it, um, and uh, story time. My granddaughter absolutely loves the show. And my and my son, at the very beginning, when I said, "Well, it looks like we're doing a podcast," because the podcast actually happened before we decided we were actually doing a podcast, um, and 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 as it has happened, my son has been like, "Oh, well, you should listen to this, and you should listen to that, and you should listen to this, and you should see how these people do it this way and that way." And um, of course, I ignored him entirely, as I did. All throughout my career, people said, <laughs> you should go see this. And I would say, hey, I'll get right on that. And I would never do that. <laughs> and um, and so it's kind of evolved into what it is now, which is basically um, me telling a story and us laughing a lot. <laughs> so you also have a book coming out next year. You want to talk about that? That's right. Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Making of Behind the Screams. You like the title? I do. Uh, I like behind the screams, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Did you work all night on that? <laughs> I'm being a smart ass. No, I, the, so for somebody... The honest, to for tell some... you the honest truth, it was like uh, <laughs> Blake was making the announcement that we're going to be writing this book on one of the um, uh, Facebook 
pages for Nightmare on Elm right. Street. And, and at, at the end of the announcement, somebody types in and goes, well, what's the book going to be called? And he calls me up and goes, what do you, what do you want to call a book? And I go, uh, behind the screams. That was it. My mouth said it. My mouth did it. My mouth named it by itself. <laughs> had nothing to do with my head, my brain, or anything. It was spitting teeth, baby, spitting teeth. I have so many jokes. <laughs> well, that's cool. How did how did you meet Blake? So we met you and Blake. It's Blake Best, right? Mm-hmm. We met you and Blake at Scarefest this past year. Is that? Did you guys know each other before then, or did you? Oh meet yeah, Blake? yeah, yeah. We Blake is the first one. Uh, I didn't really. I think I've been on Facebook for seven years, but uh, four years of that, I never even looked at it. Right. Um, but then about, but then when my sister died and we moved up here to Washington, um, just before we moved, I was talking to Rachel Talalay and Rachel Talalay goes, you do realize that you have a fan base. And I didn't even know what the hell a fan base was. <laughs> <laughs> and real quick, Rachel Talalay is one of the people that worked on all the Nightmare on Elm Street films except for the fifth one, right? And she right. directed, and her oh, husband she worked. worked on the fifth? She, oh, really? I saw in the documentary that her husband worked on the fifth one and she was doing something else. It's, okay, that's possible. Okay, and she directed part six, Freddy's Dead. Right. And for right. you Who fans out there, she's been directing she, Doctor Who. She's been killing she, it. She actually just directed the Christmas episode. She's the one that does the Christmas episodes. I this know. is her third, I believe. Yeah. Right. Well, I don't know anything about Who, but my wife loves Who, and I always As go, oh, I got Rachel Talalay. <laughs> and she goes, I don't give a shit. Rachel Talalay is one of the most awesome human beings. Yeah. She is. Been, you, you know where we met? We met, met um, on Sid and Nancy. Oh, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, way, way back when, she was doing, uh, she was doing uh, locations. Oh, really? So, yeah, what, was, what's the guy's director's yeah, name? Repo Man? Uh, Repo Man? What's the name of the director? I f completely forgot his name. Alex Cox. Alex Cox. That's right. He directed Repo Man. He yeah, used, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry. Uh, Linda, this is us geeking Linda out. And uh, uh, I worked, I, this is crazy connections. I worked with uh, Linda Burbank, Ray Fox. They were the ones that were in Britain that I worked with here. So I art directed here to put together the sets and everything for the Chelsea Hotel and all the rest of that and the sets for all the bars. I art directed all of those in California while they were coming from Britain to New York to here doing the exteriors. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. All right. Yeah, you need to and, get us. Go ahead. Rachel was there with Rachel was there with with me, and so it <coughs> everything all came together and then you know, so. Uh, Rachel says you have a fan base. And I said, really? I mean, there's there's people that there's other people out there who might even know who my what my name is. And I go, and she goes, oh my god, you have no idea. And um, it has been fairly true. Say so, and she goes, you should think about the legacy that you're leaving behind. <laughs> it never occurred to me <laughs> that there was such a thing. Well, you so, just—it was a job, right? I mean, I'm sure you loved movies, but it was a, this is this is something I was talking to Andre about. Yeah. Andre goes like this: goes when, when when he was done talking with you guys, I'm talking to him, to him on the phone. He goes, Mick, don't you wish that you could have seen in the future to see 
what it was that you worked on that would be really popular because we could have just cut those sets up into one foot squares and made a freaking fortune. Oh, and oh I go, yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Because we talked to him about that. Yeah, he was just talking about they'd throw a, you'd roll in a dumpster and just start throwing shit away. Oh, the biggest problem in L.A. is that you there's no money for storage. I mean, there's storage is like 800, it costs $800 a month to store something in a 10 by 10 container, right? Jeez. And that that right there means that the the thing that you're tr the thing that is your biggest headache at the end of a show is getting rid of all that crap. And and one of the easiest ways to get rid of it is it, everybody has decisions that they have to make about doing reshoots and crap like that. So what you do is this is you always things that are in the middle of a dispute you put into a storage locker, and then you hand the key to the production, and um, and you you wait and see how long it takes before uh, somebody goes in and sells the locker for twenty bucks. Wow! Because <laughs> they're making because they're paying thousands of dollars a month just to store it. Yeah, that's that's crazy. But if we had only but if we had only known, I mean, I the, I I think of all the things on all these films that have passed through my hands. But you're right. The thing is, is the next film you have to do is the only thing that you're thinking about. And it goes on and on and on. Because it's kind of a, and it, this is things, uh, we were talking about this before the episode, about cons, they only want actors. They never really want to talk to production people. But for, for production, it's very much a blue-collar attitude, right? It's the next show. you got to get it done. Yes. It's your next job. You're you're looking for work. If you're if you're if you're lucky, like Andre, you've been on the same job for a long time. You got a lot of security. And that's very rare. That's that's really rare. And it's really rare. So you're always kind of looking for work or whatever the next job is, and that's what you're worried about. So right. I I got a weird question that just popped into my head, and I'm sorry, and I feel like I'm taking over from the other two. What what has been the what's the biggest surprise of something that you worked on that you thought was either a piece of crap or a piece of shit or something like that, and that people still talk about it this, to this day, that you get brought two. up. What'd you say? I, I, I have two that just amaze me. What? Um, uh, the first one is Critters 2. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> God, it's a, one of our <laughs> But you know what? Oh, my God. And oh, you... my God. Who, who, who the hell knew? I mean, I built a whole town for them because I was kind of like the guy that you brought in to do the big non-budget, low-budget low thing, and we have to do this incredibly big thing. Yeah. I was glad to do it. But but the thing is, is Critters 2 is more popular than Critters. It is. It is. It is. And rightly right. so. <laughs> it, it, but but the other one is this, and I don't know, is, and this surprised the hell out of me. Just, just about um, four years ago, my daughter... Uh, my daughter Cassidy Khaki uh, was at a party. <laughs> she goes, and it was an '80s party, and so they were showing a, a film that I had seen before. And she's saying she's seen this film before at '80s parties, and it's called Breaking Two. Two electric boogaloo. Uh, I said, "What?" I said, and she says, "I'm." Not kidding, but we're looking and the credits are running up and all of a sudden I see your name. I go, oh my God, the guy is everywhere. I went, Critters too? <laughs> I mean, I mean uh, Breaking too? I, how did that, 
How did that make it through all this, right? I think that gets thrown out a lot, though, in different shows. Because I know even um, Mystery Science Theater 3000, which is known for mocking bad films, never right. made fun of that film. But anytime it was a sequel they were making fun of, they would say, I don't know, Boggy Creek 2, Electric, Electric Boogaloo. Boogaloo. I think it's the title. Because nobody talks about Breaking. No. Right? <laughs> I have nobody never seen Breaking. Break right. I have nobody. never seen right. the first one. But I have seen right. Breaking too. Well, let me give you an example of this. There was two films that, are, that there was two films that I was up for when um, when I did <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street three, and 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 I think that you guys have heard my whole spiel on Nightmare on Elm Street three being the first of the thirds that actually moved, that actually became big, mm -hmm. because yeah. until that time you you made the first film and then the second film got a quarter as much money, right? Right, right, right. And that's right. what happened. And then Bob Shea comes in and says, well, I'm looking to break the mold here because that's all you got. You got two films, right? Mm -hmm. There wasn't these huge you know, franchises that go up to 10 or right, right, 11 right. or 13 and reboot and do this. And right, this, right, and this. right. That didn't exist back then. What you had was you had Bob Shea going, well, you know what? We're going to turn this around. And, and it was done by creating a group that has a chance. You know, the, the Dream Warriors, you know, they had a chance in that story now, you know, because they were going to get together and they were going to fight. That was the one element that was different. The other element was, is we took it onto a stage and we just blew the look out, you know? Yeah. I mean, we went into a dream. We didn't, we, we did weird sets and stuff like that. And we made Freddie a character. Yeah. Now, can I ask you a really quick question about that? And yeah. I'm not taking anything away from the production design, but how much of the success also relies on the fact that that movie's written by Frank Darabont? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, well, it, it, original it, Wes Craven did the first first version, but yeah, it's right. right. But 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 you see, it was a great story. But the thing is, think of it this way: run that in your head without Freddie being funny. Yeah. Yeah. See, doesn't work, does it? No, not really. And that's and, also and, the version of Chuck Russell. And it was written to something that Robert England did well. Robert England was a great cut up. You know, he had he had physical, you know, his he had this physical look that he could do all these bends and and you know and stand just yeah. right and stuff like that. But what he really did is is he sold this kind of evil humor. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time that you saw it, and it was really, really successful. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, actually, uh, I saw an interview with Rachel Talalay where she said the reason 4 was so successful was because of 3, in her opinion. Because people love 3, that the reason 4 was even more successful. I And I also think this, that the, the only person that we had to beat was ourselves. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's, it, I mean, we didn't have writing. I mean, let's face it. That was an art department. I spent in the art department on a non-union film. I spent one point one million dollars. Oh, really? So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Nobody ever said no. Yeah. Nobody said no because we didn't have writing to make it up, and we didn't have, you know, great story arcs to make it up. So I said, well, you know, my idea on three and on this one is that they're going to be a roller coaster, but let's consider. Number three was the roller coaster that you get in the parking lot of Walmart. <laughs> and this is Disneyland, right? right. Now, four is directed by Rennie Harlan. Yeah. Chad went, eh, I like Cliffhanger. <laughs> uh, and I like four. But I was I like Cutthroat Island. 
Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we're getting off topic here. But now, was it the script was it's never done because of the writer's strike? And wasn't that uh, the original script? Um, he, went in on, he went on to uh, win an Oscar for um, the Clint Eastwood film, the one about the kid getting killed. Um, what's it called? The Shotgun. Uh, uh, oh, Jesus. Mystic River? Mystic, Mystic River. River. Is that is that the is that the way it happened? Was there was a writer strike and the script never got done, or is there more to that story? It was. Oh, you can tell it. This means there, you've it's got kind of written by the crew. It was written by the crew. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It, it was. It, it was an example of. Uh, of they went certain directions. That, you know, I, I hate to say this, but don't. They went certain directions and. There was there was a scene uh, that was cut out that was huge. Yeah. And it was all done with Tuesday night. Uh-huh. And it was when t- Tuesday night Stan is uh, woken up and she goes downstairs in her house, right? Yeah. And we have her house we're we're um, in a lot on Third Street in downtown LA, we have we had a vacant lot and we put up a facade of the Elm Street house. Yeah. The, the one that you see in Nightmare Elm Street 4. Which which is interesting because you know the reason that you really know that that's a facade is because it has Klieg lights coming through the windows. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, think about it. Think about that photo that you've seen of it with her standing there. Yeah in front of it and the light coming from the windows is like done in rays that are you know rays that are like shooting out like that you can't do that if you don't have huge amount of space behind you right right? so um we built that we built that facade and then in front of it we built another facade that was the facade of her house okay Uh and and it split. It was split in the middle, and it had a crane, uh, basically a big bar with a crane holding up. And, and this is big stuff. I mean, really. Yeah. And the whole facade of the house. The idea was that we follow her down. Uh, Tuesday night opens the front door to her house. She comes out onto the porch. We're looking. We're looking at her, and the crane goes up above her head as she hears like a scraping noise, and all of a sudden, sh- the camera slams back down. We've pulled her house away like this, and the Elm Street house is behind her. She starts to run towards the camera, away from the Elm Street house, into an Elm Street hallway that was built across the street, and the Elm Street door slams down. And she's trapped back in the Elm Street house. Yeah. So that was one shot. One shot. Took all day long to get that shot. The rigging for it was just amazing. Gosh. But they didn't use it in the film. That's insane. Yeah. It was a huge expensive deal. But it's because they decided, and I'm not going to say I'm not going to say why, because I don't know, but they decided that she wasn't going to be the final girl anymore. Huh. That it was... Money? Lisa Wilcox. Yeah. Mm. 
Uh, it's a matter of it's a matter I think of kind of who's better. Oh really? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I you know I don't want to say I don't want to say, but that's that was the scuttlebutt at the time. It's usually money though, so maybe talent would be went out on one thing because it's usually because <laughs> somebody wants another fifty bucks. Yeah. But but literally literally the editor came up to my desk and that was my thing. I mean that 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 was a huge piece piece of art department work. It was yeah. just such it was a huge concentration and the editor came in and he had this round <laughs> rolled up piece of film and he slams it down on my desk about three weeks after we were done. He says, there, that's <laughs> there's there's your shot. I yeah. Go, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, he says, we wrote her out of the rest of the film. Basically, we're going to kill her off. Yeah. And I was like, are you kidding me? And that was it. And it was gone. So that gives you an, an idea of kind of the chaos of the filming itself and how much the script would go one way and the script would go the other. And can, can I ask you another example of a movie that you worked on that where that may have happened if you have a story about it? Because... Mm -hmm. You worked on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the original theatrical oh, version. I, I don't have stories for it. Really? Because, yeah, we were... Here's the weird thing. I worked on that. I worked on setting the film up. Yeah. Um, I I worked on it and in doing some of the rigging of it. But uh, we were... Just at, the, just at the very beginning of the film, as we were doing all the setups, a, a new... The producer was fired, and everybody went out with him, and it was a whole new group that came in and actually did the film. Yeah, and, and like I said, Josh Whedon, who, you know, everybody knows who Josh Whedon is now. Back then, he, right. was, he was very little known, and, you know, he ended up walking off that movie because, he you know, not only did they completely change his story, but Don, he called Donald Sutherland a prick, you know? Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't he, know that. He hated exactly. Donald Sutherland. And, this, and, and we moved out with him and, and with his production company and all the rest, and that was it. Oh, okay. Oh, so that's that's the way it goes. I didn't know that story about Donald Sutherland. Speaking yeah, he of, hates Donald Sutherland. Uh, speaking of vampires, uh, another film that you worked on, Blade, which is now, I, I always give it credit. I think now we're in the heyday of comic book films. Now we have been for probably. Well, I was gonna say, and you all beat it to the punch. I think that's why I think that film got comics a lot more attention. Do you have any stories about Blade? Blade was just a nightmare. I was working effects. <laughs> Is it because I, of Stephen Norrington? You mean Dora? Oh, no, Stephen Norrington, the director. Sorry. I'm going to tell you, the guy is a dick. I, well, he, he, he and Sean Connery got into it on League of Extraordinary Gentlemen yeah. right after that. I had a friend of mine. I actually walked off that film in the middle because of Norrington. I, I just couldn't take him anymore. I mean, he was just such a... a we had, we had a, a rig that he had requested, which was... Uh, this thing that was supposed to simulate uh, a train uh, bouncing a whole bunch of guys off uh -huh. uh, uh, the bad guys coming through the subway, right? right. And what he wanted us to do is, was make a rig that would bounce them, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, we had to make this huge thing, and we had to run it down the tracks and, and, and set it up. And, and as soon as we set it up, we set it up during lunch uh, for him. And then he says, I'm going to show you that we don't need any of this junk. <laughs> he was he was such a dick to work with. I, you just have no idea. I mean, he was a horrible human being. In <laughs> fact, in fact, I walked off the film. Most of my crew 
stayed on. And, um, <laughs> and, and I actually think that uh, Andre was one of them that uh, set him up. So they, they said, he said, well, I need to move this lamp. And so they said, well, you know, put your hand right here where you want the lamp and, and we'll mark it from the back. And then they went behind the flat and they drove a three inch screw through his hand from behind the flat. <laughs> Dude, I'm telling you, on that film, on, on, on that film, the one of the cameramen was shooting an overhead shot, like an overhead shot. And that guy jumped on Norrington from up there, from 15 feet up, jumped, jumped him and pulled him down. There was another case where one of the, where the key grip turned around and just punched him in the face and knocked him out. The whole the whole grip department um, walked off of the film for two days and they had to be negotiated back onto the set. How the hell did he get the job? I always wonder about this. I mean, what's the movie and he did before that with Brad Dourif? Uh, it's the one. It's like Death Machine or something. Is the movie mm. he did before that? Yeah. No, I wonder. I, 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 he was such a prick. I, I got to tell you that the thing is, is this, is he wanted to prove, or he kept saying this, is that he wanted to prove that the American way of making films was broken and 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 that, you know, the way that British and the rest of America, the world did films was better. But, you know, the problem is, is this, is if you're the director on a film, you can pretty much prove it's broken pretty easily <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you just don't <laughs> that makes sense because all you have to do is take the train and steer it you know into the rock i mean you know it's it ain't all that hard well it's not it's not one of my favorite movies you like well, it more than i do i, I, I like say, the sequel by del toro much much better but uh, how did it come out as well as it did well and that's, that's actually one of my questions too because it had a changed ending uh I, I, oh, the, the ending for that thing was uh, was absolutely unknown while we were filming, and when I walked off, it was still unknown. Yeah, nobody could figure it out. Nobody could figure out, you know, what they wanted to do. And and the the thing is, it was one of these cases of this: we don't know what we want to do, but we want it really big. Mm -hmm. So give us ideas that are really big. And then you'd give them ideas that are, that are really big, and they would say, "Well, we can't do that. That would cost money." And it was, it was just shitty. It was the whole thing. The whole time you got you this feeling that you were locked in the middle of a horrible, horrible battle, and that you just you couldn't get out. You know. So was that just one of those happy accidents that it came out as well as it did? That it was a success. Um. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if it's true. You would know better than I would. But I heard some people have said um, that movie owes a little bit to Wesley Snipes wanting it to be something. That as an actor, he wanted it to be something. He he was counting on it for his return because he was uh, up until that point, you know, he, his career had just really kind of dived and uh, and the 57, 1600 Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's. <laughs> That's uh, the the, uh, the I just wanted to ask questions about it because I the the alternate ending that they did for the DVD, which looks like they spent some money on, where he actually right. becomes the Blood God, and Blade has to fight him, and then it, it sets up another villain at the end of it, which they never go back to because it, they change the ending. But 
I just wondered about that because it seems like the more I watched about how that got made, the more <laughs> I was like, I don't, I still don't know how this got made. I, well, you know, the thing is, is that I don't think I, I've ever had a film where so many people walked off, so many people, you know, were just crying. I mean, literally crying. You would walk into somebody's office and they would be crying. I would hope you know? Stephen Norrington cried when you put a nail through his hand. <laughs> I I hope so. I You know, I give you an example. An example of the way that this guy would do things. He changed the... If you say in wardrobe, we're going to have these cop uniforms, right? Okay. For instance, in that big scene where um, where the wall of the subway blows out, mm-hmm. right? And all the cops are there. So, and, and there's the, um, I, I don't know. You know, I haven't seen it in a long time. I haven't either. But, <laughs> but haven't either. in that scene, there's 30, there's 30 cops, right? And they all die, you know, in the middle of, and they all have squibs on them. Yeah, yeah. The night before we did that scene, he decided to change the uniforms. Now, here's the thing: is that means that the wardrobe people then have to put, have to take all these uniforms, three takes of uniforms. That's a hundred uniforms. They have to get a hundred uniforms, and we as effects people had to rig them, right? And and it's just, a, it was a logistic nightmare. And I have to say, is the producers didn't. Never said no to the guy. Well, I was they about never to, turned around and said, "This is fucking ridiculous." I was about to ask Why? you about that because that's a new line picture. Why didn't Bob Shea or somebody come down and just say no? Well, I put it on the head of I put it on the head of Bob Bob Engelman. Bob Engelman was the line producer. Okay, and he never said no. And the thing is, is he told me at the beginning of the film, he said that, you know, I really want to see. I really have noticed that of the films that I've done, because I worked with Bob a lot, the the ones that were the biggest battle came out to be the best films. And it was just a, it, it's just something that he said. But I have to tell you, on that film, I had a feeling that he was the fomenter of the chaos. Yeah. That he wasn't, he was just letting it happen. You know, he, I think that he thought that it was going to make a great film. And, you know, it came out to be a pretty good film. I mean, it's okay. Uh, I, it, it was a successful film. It was a successful film. And, yeah, and launched a couple more. I I have two questions, and it real, and and I know we're going to talk about some other movies, but and I'll put off one of them till later. But who is another person, a director that was tr- problematic? It maybe not as bad as Stephen Norrington. You, you obviously have Charles some. Russell. Who? Oh, I should have thought about that longer. No, Chuck I didn't Russell. hear <laughs> Chuck Russell. <laughs> Chuck. Oh, Chuck. yeah, Chuck Russell was Charles Russell. But you know what? Here's the thing. Let me tell you something. Chuck Russell was a prick. Okay, but, I've never met him. But in the end, but in the end, he got the job done. Yeah. Okay. He he was. He, I I think that he was pushing and pushing and pushing. Uh, and and we, it's not that we were trying to build a small film. It's just that we were budgeted to build a small film. Right, right, you know? right. And he was trying to get yeah. the most out of it. Is wait, that, just so the people who are listening to this podcast aren't familiar, who is Chuck Russell? He directed Nightmare on M Street three. The he directed would later direct the, the remake Blob. of The Blob, okay. uh, Eraser with Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, something Bless the Child, the Kim Basinger film. Yeah, he yeah, directed Christine Ricci. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's who this is. Yeah. So continue on. So so I. I you know, he 
was difficult to deal with. Uh, my sister used to say this about him that, y you know, if, if you said no to, to Chuck and the producer said no to Chuck, he would go and he would start asking the uh, janitor to do it for him. I mean, the guy really was just kind of was push, 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 push. And uh, I remember Roy Wagner uh, was on set with him, the DP. Roy Wagner was the DP. Okay. Um, and uh, he's just the sweetest guy in the world. And, and he came out uh, off of the off of the mirror set, you know, with uh, all the. You remember the mirror hallway, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. He walked out of it one time and. <laughs> and there was like this little one gallon bucket with paint in it. Yeah. And he kicked it as hard as he possibly could. It went just as I was coming down. It went over my head, spilling a stream of paint on me and went right out and back behind me. So that was the kind of tension that was uh, on that one. So, yeah. uh you know, the, those it stands to the, to this day that those two guys, Steve Norrington and and Chuck Russell, are probably not my favorites to work with. Well, I was kind of curious, and and I know I'm maybe belaboring the point. Was it just because he was trying to get the most out of it, or was he just not a just not a nice person, Chuck Russell? Just not a nice person about doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About the way that he did it. Right. You so you don't Nor mind him trying to get, go ahead. Norrington was a complete flaming asshole from the word go. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, just, just Norrington, you know, the thing, thing, and I say this often that I, I'm, I'm a gun control kind of guy, you know, I really believe in it and all the rest of that, but Britain has complete gun control right? Uh -huh. and it makes it so that let's face it, the population doesn't get thinned out. <laughs> <laughs> so, if, if Steve Warrington were born in Texas, he would have never lived long enough he to He never would have made it out of anything. Texas. Yeah, he never would have made it out of Texas. He never would have made it out of Texas. So, <laughs> no, anyway, I understand. <laughs> I, understand. <laughs> I did. My, my wife gets completely blown away by a British accent, and yet I worked in the film business, and I know what a British accent means. <laughs> <laughs> what does it mean? It means I'm a privileged prick. <laughs> <laughs> Here in America to take American studio money. <laughs> That's right. That's right? exactly. Yeah. Uh, and the thing is, is there are more fake, there are more fake British accents in in L.A. than anywhere in the world. Yep. I, I don't doubt that. What are some other? So, I mean, if if you're a musician, if you're a musician and you're a guitarist and you don't have a fake fake British accent, you're just not working. <laughs> <laughs> you're unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> so, I've I've seen you mention this movie in some of your posts on Facebook. Um, also, it's one of the staples of my childhood, and I've actually brought it up. I've actually brought it up. You. I've actually brought it up on a few podcasts that we've done. The movie Witchboard. <laughs> oh, Witchboard! Yes, <laughs> Kevin Tinney. <laughs> yeah. By the way, Kevin Tinney. I don't know him. I am friends with him on Facebook. We we I know people who know him will not respond about doing our show, so I'm just going to throw that out there. There's a couple other people that won't talk to three hicks from Kentucky either. <laughs> Mick Garris, but... And a couple well, others. Well, hey, just, just show him this, and he'll definitely not do your show. <laughs> Maybe we can get Stephen Norrington. 
Maybe yeah. we're just <laughs> yeah, yeah. Will you come hey. on and defend yourself against me? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know who that asshole thinks he was. <laughs> but yeah, no. Anyway, Kevin Tenney's. I worked. I worked Witchboard with uh, Tazel Bauer. Taz, ta I was. I was doing assistant effects, and Tazel Bauer was doing the. Uh, w was the coordinator, and it was just the two of us, and uh, we had a blast. I mean, really, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> did did you did you work on Night? Of, I don't have it. Did you work on his follow up, Night of the Demons? No. no, no I, Andre I was, did. Uh, Andre did. Andre, I Andre believe did. did. Oh, okay. Yeah, Andre did. Yeah, I think. Okay. <laughs> I was curious. By the way, Andre, if you listen to this and you didn't, I'm sorry. No <laughs> What's another one? Oh, I mean, we've got tons. Candyman. Candyman. Oh, yeah. We, Candyman seems to be an essential question. Doesn't yeah. that... It's also directed by a British bastard, right? Candyman? Oh, Candyman. <laughs> yeah. I love it when you have that face. It means there's going to be a good story. <laughs> okay. Here's what happened. <laughs> By the time we got to Candyman, I had sort of become a fixer. I would come in when our department had just gone completely crazy, right? Uh -huh. And and so I came in and I set a deal and I said, "Well, you know, what are your what are your problems? I mean, you want to replace the whole art department?" He says, "Well, if if and the producers are saying, yeah, if you have to, yeah, if you must, you must." And I, and I was well. I don't know. I mean, this thing's like uh, two thirds of the way finished. I, I uh, we're on stage. What possibly could be going on that would make you want to like uh, replace your art department now? And uh, and the the producer goes, well, I mean, there's kind of there's personality conflicts. So we sat down. We set a deal, right? And so I go out onto the stage to see what's going on. And we're, we're in this beautiful apartment set. I walk onto the stage. And as I walk onto the stage, this DP, this older looking gentleman, comes running around the corner of the, of the, the flat. And I was, I was surprised because he was moving so fast. And as you came into the stage, there was uh, uh, the coffee, the calf services was over here and the coffee machine was on the corner here. And he comes in and he grabs the regular coffee pot and books it and goes back around the corner. And I go, well, what the hell is that? And so I walk around the corner to find the entire crew in the middle of the room the entire crew waiting, set up on a shot, but in front is not the actors, but is the production designer with the decaf and the DP with the regular and them slinging hot coffee at each other. It, yeah, exactly. That's a hostile so, work environment. Only in the movies, by the way. It's and, and screaming, just screaming at each other at the top of their lungs and the crew the crew absolutely had a look on their faces that said this is just another day of this right and I turned back around and I walked back to the producer's office <laughs> I closed the door behind me I sat down and I said well guess what we're gonna double we're gonna double my pay <laughs> I don't blame and you did. and I walked out and, and I didn't replace 
them so much as I spent the rest of the film uh, doing my best to separate those two <laughs> from each other. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I did work as, I worked as production designer for the rest of it and, and, and kind of just made sure that the two of them didn't mix with each other. And, and I, I don't even know what credit I took on the film, but, but that was my job on that. Wow. Mm -hmm. So do you know why, what started it? Or is it just, just a personality conflict that just escalated? Well, she was a jerk. Let's see. I don't know how a person becomes a cult, but she was a, uh, I worked with her later on and, and I can't think of her name, but I worked with her later on as an art director also. And, and, um, I can tell you a story about that. Uh, she had some neon made and, and, and we were in Portland, <laughs> we were filming in Portland. She had some neon made at a local shop. And the local shop wrote into their contract that uh, it was going to cost us $100 every time she walked in to complain. It, they literally put this in the contract that it was going to cost $100 every time she walked in to bitch at them about the and, – and at the very end, I signed a $1,600 <laughs> deal for a $300 piece of, uh, of uh, neon. So and, – and the thing is, is the producer – this is how well the producer knew her – at that point, that he okayed it also. <laughs> said, no problem. You know, consider they we're considering that cheap. Okay, that was her. The DP um, came was just on set after a, another in a series of um, um, rehab stints, and he he was one of these guys. <laughs> Okay, well, set the camera back up over there, and you know, just always rubbing his face and uh, yeah, yeah, it was it was intense. Let's put it that way. Their demons, their demons were just smacking each other all the all the time, boy. I so this, I had this. Would you? Uh, well, I had this question <laughs> earlier, and it and it's more maybe of a feeling of mine. But I feel you were talking about you had a bigger budget for production design, right? And art department and all these things. And you want to make these movies. Right. What'd you say? Oh, we were right. talking about Nightmare earlier. Which Nightmare? Uh, was it three or four? I believe it was four. Was it four? Because he, yeah. so. he didn't have a script. And nobody really said no when you were building these things. And you, you know what? Right. Right. I, I, horror films now, they're so micro-budgeted that I think... And it's probably true of Saul and a lot of them. They, the, the money's not spent on the movie. It's spent on the advertising campaign. Right. I, right. I just Did wanted you your opinion on that. I, I just, you yeah. know, it's. Well, that was, that was, the 80s were the time of the big, uh, the late 80s. Horror films grew up. Yeah. You know, they, they started to, I, I mean, let's face it, before that, the most money ever spent on a horror film would you'd have to go all the way back to uh, you know Universal Pictures and 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 the classics, right? right. You know, every, every every horror film made you know between then and 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 you know up until the '80s was basically made by 
Corman or, you know, it was made by little companies that... Or if, that yeah, I believe Bruce Campbell is quoted as saying, you know, if you worked in horror movies in the early 80s, you were basically, a, might as well be considered a porn star at that point in time. Exactly. You were barely a step above porn. Yeah. And and, and sometimes you were using the same sets. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that before. Well, and that's yeah. probably true of Val Luton pictures as well. I mean, that I mean, Val Luton made a career out of making nothing like Cat People, and and for Shadows and oh, things, yeah. and they oh, yeah. and they were yeah. low budget and, and, see, and just building it all on atmosphere. But as you started to get into the '80s, you know, there was an evolution that happened, and we were part of that evolution. I mean, you know, hell, we were, you know, you were the, the New Line was the evolution. Yeah, it was the evolution. Right? New Line I was mean, the evolution. Three and four, like the. The prod, you know, nightmare grew right there as those films did, and, and they grew in popularity, and they, you know, Freddie became an icon. You know, Freddie, Freddie became, and and, and Freddie was to to horror of the '80s and '90s and 2000s, and even now to a certain extent, Freddie was Vincent Price. Yeah. Oh, you absolutely! Know? Yeah, it was more of a pop. It, it became pop culture, right? It became pop culture. I mean, all you know, there wasn't a horror film that was pop culture other than Vincent Price himself. Himself, you know, th th that was that was it. That was your pop culture reference to horror was absolutely. was Vincent Price. You know, up until that point, and then from then on, you know, it it it, it became big business, and we were right on the cusp of it. It cut across everything too. You had rap videos with Freddie. You had right. Oh, which you, you did the Fat Boys video, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> oh, you, you did the Fat Boys video. Do you have a Fat yeah. Boys story? Yeah. Those guys are great. <laughs> listen, listen. The, doing the Fat Boys video at and um, sitting in the parking lot with the three of them. Uh, and they were sitting on these uh, these little tiny scooters, right? <laughs> and, 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 and I had one, and they had one. We were all, and we're all just hanging in the parking lot. And we're done, and and we got into the weirdest discussion. We got into who who was the baddest? Was it Michael Myers, or was it Leatherface, or uh -huh. or was it uh, Freddy? Right. And, and they they discussed it seriously for like forty five minutes or or so, and then the 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 one was that was the shortest and the widest. Yeah. With gold. Uh -huh. He turns <laughs> he turns. I'll never forget this. He turns around and he stopped the old the whole argument by going like this. He just you know got to be Freddy and it's got to be Freddy and you know why it's got to be Freddy because he get you in your dreams, man. He get you in your dreams and how are you gonna fight that? <laughs> <laughs> And there you have it. What other questions and do we have? And there you have it. You know what? I I, I got to tell you, the wisdom that that guy put out was, yeah. I, I still think to this day it's a pretty damn good argument. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I, I think the other ones, you don't like. I never worry about Jason Voorhees. I see a sign that says Camp Crystal Lake. I'm not going. <laughs> exactly. I'm not going. I'm not going to an abandoned gas station in Texas. So Leatherface, the, the kids in the 30s and 40s were having the same arguments about the Mummy and the Wolfman and Dracula right. and Frankenstein. <laughs> it's the same thing. But but Freddie, get you in your dream. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. And you gotta yeah. sleep. And you gotta sleep. You gotta, you gotta yeah. sleep sometimes. We're just almost an hour in. Anything else? I I mean, if he has some stories about tales from the dark side or rings of the rings of the musketeers. 
Thanks. I don't I even know what rings back. I must. You know that. I've got stories forever. <laughs> well, you guys, you guys just just promote my Dream Warrior review. Promote my book. Yeah, we will. will. We will. Back. We will. And, then, and when you're close, I owe you dinner. Yes, yes, we, we will. We do. You need to, <laughs> right. We need to do dinner when you're close. And you hopefully you'll be at a con. Go ahead. You know what else you could do is you could uh, uh, talk to Layla Cook and get her to uh, bring me out to Scarefest again. Hey, brother, if I had... I, well, I won't do it on here. We'll do it off record somewhere. <laughs> and it's not that I have... I, Scarefest is great to us, but, and they really are. I will tell yeah. people on and off uh, off the record anywhere. But if I had any input in that, it would look different. <laughs> <laughs> there would be a lot more writers. There would be a lot more directors. There would be a lot more production people there. That's that's one of the things that I've who always Who always have the best stories if you're into filmmaking. For people who are actually the into films Here's and the filmmaking. Nothing, this is nothing against actors who love actors. I mean, I have to. But the thing is, is their stories are always related to their experience on a film which is just the tip of the iceberg. And right. they're out in their that. trailer, except for the two hours that they're on set. They've even got exactly. somebody doing the stand-in, doing the lining for them. And, and let me tell you who, who put it best was Max von Cleven. Max von Cleven was a director that, that was uh, known for doing second unit. Uh -huh. and, he, and he said to me, he would say this, when we did uh, the second unit for Runaway Train. And he would say, boys, we're the ones that are on the trailer. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Second unit makes the trailer. That's right. absolutely the truth. Absolutely true. <laughs> all the action scenes, all the stuff that people want to see, right? That's yeah. right. That's right. <laughs> all right. Well, I hate to do it that way. We're an hour in. We're going to have you back on again in a couple of months because we always love We're we're going to talk about Tales from the Dark Side. What and was the other one? What, Ring, of eight Ring of the Musketeers, Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag, Kazam. Uh, <laughs> we do do oh, our... New, hey, New Zealand by itself. Well, yeah, <laughs> we yeah, got to yeah, talk yeah, about yeah. New Zealand sometime. Yes. yes. I, uh, I, before we go, I do want to close this out. My father has never taken any interest in anything that I've done. Ever. Even uh, the ever. kids. Even yeah, his like, grandchildren. He, he's vaguely aware that he has grandkids. <laughs> but I did want to share this with you. Over the uh, Christmas holiday... He said, "My some of my cousins, his nieces and nephews, say you do this podcast thing. What's that about?" And so, well, we we talk to different people. We talk about pop culture, and he said, "Well, tell me about the best one you did." And I actually played him some of yours. My right. father is very, very. Uh, he was always kind of a stern father. He's relaxed now that he's older. He laughed and he said, really? "What you went through." On the set of Boogie Nights, he said, that man deserved an Oscar. If he didn't have an Oscar for going through that. So I wanted to share that with you. You made my father laugh harder than I've heard him laugh in years. And he said, you know, those years I worked in a factory don't seem so bad now. <laughs> so thank you for that from my father. Thank you, Mick, for, for everything that you've done for us. We really appreciate it. And we always love having you on the show. And we always talk about... When we meet people, when we talk about conventions, hey, you need more production people. Hey, there's this guy. We know a guy. Great storyteller. So thank you so much for all the support you've given. Thanks a lot, guys. You know that I, I totally, I totally love it when you when we get together. I know, I know, and we love hanging out with you. Thanks for talking to Three Hicks. 
from Kentucky. <laughs> and being very patient through technical difficulties. Yeah, we're an hour late taking this because we just needed to restart hey, the computer. Hey, listen, uh, I've been hung up by more technical difficulties in my life than you can possibly imagine. <laughs> yeah, you're in production. It's nothing but a technical no, difficulty. You know, there, there's two lies that I've told in my told through my life consistently. The first one is, honey, I'll be home in an hour. Yeah. Which, <laughs> the hell, that never, that never happened. The, the second one was was standing on set when something goes wrong and they, they would turn to you and go, well, how long is it going to take? And you go, 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Always. Always 10, 10 minutes. minutes. You just, you just see that their faces and just go, oh, God, not 10 minutes. Yes, yeah. 10 minutes. All right. Because. They know. When you say 10 minutes, they know exactly what you mean. I have no idea. <laughs> well, thank you so much. That wraps up this episode of Bonehead. Jo tune in and go to your podcast where? Dream Warrior Review. Got it. Dream Warrior we, Review. Thank you all you, so if much. If you think that this was funny, I saved the good stuff for us. <laughs> yeah. You jerk. <laughs> I'm going to touch you, you son of a bitch. Thanks everybody, that's Bonehead, we're out. <laughs>